Hello, this is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. A quick plug before we start, my folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. And now, back to your regularly scheduled Retrotube. everybody. Welcome to the second episode of Retrotube, where my good friend and general partner in crime Adam and I take it in turns each week to discuss the television shows that shaped our lives from the 60s to the 80s. This week, it's my turn to introduce a show, and I couldn't possibly have chosen anything other than the 1965 Jerry Anderson masterpiece, and arguably Super Mario Nation's finest, Thunderbirds. Thunderbirds are go. Thunderbirds was the big-budget special effects show that Mr and Mrs Anderson created following their 1964 series Stingray. For all you pub quiz lovers out there, and hey, remember pub quizzes? Anyway, Stingray was the first British show to be filmed entirely in colour. Thunderbirds holds the distinction of being the only 50-minute long show in the Super Mario Nation catalogue, and its characters are still very much beloved generations later, either through this original series or the more modern CGI live-action conglomerate Thunderbirds Are Go which isn't really anything to do with this series. For anyone who's been living under a rock for the last 55 years, Thunderbirds follows the adventures of the Tracy family, sons Scott, Virgil, John, Gordon and the other one, Sorry, Alan. Led by their rather gruff and grumpy dad, Jeff Tracy, the original Silver Fox, who uses their vast fortune to help other people under the name of International Rescue. They use their advanced technology created by the engineer brains to rescue people from situations where without International Rescue's intervention, they would surely die. They're ably assisted by Brain's assistant, Tintin Carano, the aristocratic socialite Lady Penelope Crichton-Ward, and her long-suffering, faithful butler, Aloysius Parker, a former safecracker turned good and known to his former associates as Nosy. We never find out if that's because his surname is Parker or just because he has one hell of a conk. Thunderbirds has been in my top three favourite shows of all time since I was about eight years old. But Adam, what was your prior experience of the show? Had you ever seen it? And what preconceptions or dull memories did you have of the show? Well, that's a very good question. It's actually one that's quite difficult to answer. I know growing up, I watched uh, Captain Scarlet. That was my super marionation. I presume that was by the same people. Yes, yes. Captain Scarlet was the one after Thunderbirds. Yeah. And it's my memory of it that it was quite a dark, brooding and sinister show. It wasn't quite so peppy as Thunderbirds. Yes. Captain Scarlet was super dark. (laughs) Yeah, even... Yeah, even watching it as a grown-up, because I still watch all of them frequently. Um, Yeah, Captain Scarlet does have some real moments of, wow, (laughs) you let kids watch that. (laughs) We may have to come back to Captain Scarlet, because I genuinely haven't seen it since it was broadcast in the 80s. And I only watched that one because it was on telly. 
Um, so to answer your original question, I genuinely can't remember because obviously Thunderbirds is so iconic that anyone, as you said, who hasn't been living under a rock is familiar with Parker and Lady P- Penelope and Brains and the whole Thunderbirds shenanigans generally. But whether I've actually sat down and watched any of the episodes, I couldn't tell you. Possibly not. Wow. Certainly not recently. Well, I have recently because I watched some today and yesterday. But prior to that, um, certainly not recently, yes. I don't think. Wow. I'm I'm sorry. Mm. Uh, wow. <laughs> I feel really bad for you. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I just genuinely can't imagine my life without Thunderbirds in it. Um <laughs> I, I am I am this much of a geek. Um, <laughs> so the episodes that we have watched, um, I sort of steered clear eventually of showing you my favourite episode, which is Operation Crash Dive. Um, and so instead, we watched the episodes The Perils of Penelope and Terror in New York City, which are both very firm fan favourites. So I think anybody listening to this who knows anything about Thunderbirds will probably be yelling yes quite loudly at the the podcast provider of preference right now. So shall we start with the first one? Let's start with the first one, which was The Perils of Penelope. Yes. How did you think how did you feel about this? Well it immediately the title immediately made me think of the perils of Penelope Pit Stop. I'll get you Penelope Pit Stop <laughs> which I'm much more familiar with <laughs> with another sixties uh, I don't know which one came first. Yes, um, to be fair, you just wanted to mention that so that uh, you could um, you could get your fantastic impression of the hooded claw in. Don't lie to me. Hey, I could do my Paul Lind impression, yeah. Yeah, I know. I know you. I enjoyed them both anyway. Um, they were both very different, which was good, but they were both very different sort of styles of stories. So the second one, the, the um, it's not Escape from New York. What is it called? Disaster in New York? Terror in New York City. Terror. It's... Something awful in New York is much yes. more what I associate with the Thunderbirds. Yeah, it is more of a a standard episode. I would I would say it's more more indicative. Yeah, there are a few really decent spy episodes of um of Thunderbirds, and the Perils of, P- of Penelope is probably the most iconic. Right. So my initial thought, um, having uh, in the mm. previous episodes just done tripods. Uh, my initial thought was it's just nice to have some colour <laughs> and kind of glossiness and brightness rather than that murky, muddy videotape. It's nice to have actually some film. Yeah. Um, it strikes me as well that it's interesting how a show made in the 1960s looks much fresher and more modern than a lot of shows made 10 years later and 20 years later. Oh yeah, th- this this show had so much money behind it. You can tell. Um, Lou Grade basically basically gave Jerry Anderson an open checkbook for this. It turned out that the episodes cost, on average, around five hundred thousand pounds per episode. Wow! Which in nineteen sixty four, when it was being made, was probably more than most feature films. Um, most of the money, as I'm sure you saw went on the explosion. <laughs> I was wondering about that. <laughs> Derek Meddings is a goddamn genius and he was he's the one who created all of the special effects that you that you see. Um it like basically his his sort of ethos was 
I look at a thing and I wonder how I can blow it up. <laughs> um, and He's I, I respect sort of that fellow. about him. <laughs> uh, he was he was just amazing. Um, it, he had been with the Andersons pretty much from the start when they made they they did their first um, the first special effect on a show called Torchy the Battery Board. Oh yes, my mum mentioned that one a lot. I do have I do have a Wainwright related story about that. Uh, when my mum uh, my mum got married in 1962, and um, the fashion at the time was for the bride to wear like with the veil. There was like a little a little centerpiece on on top of the veil, like a, a little arrangement of flowers um, that kind of like stood up on on top of the on top of the veil. And so my mum had got herself ready for the wedding, and she come downstairs. And being all like, well, hey, how do I look? And uh, the first thing her dad said to her was, oh, my God, you look just like Torchy the Battery Boy. <laughs> um, and I hadn't seen Torchy the Battery Boy at this point, so I had to Google it. And I laughed <laughs> and laughed because, honestly, the the resemblance was truly uncanny. Like, you know, well done to Grandad Hargadon. <laughs> he, he totally nailed that. Um, but the first... Uh, the, the first special effect with, that Derek Meddings did was on Torchy the Battery Boy. And as the shows became more and more popular with, for example, Four, Four Feather Falls, Fireball X, XL5, they just got more and more money to do more and more what they wanted with. Um, mm. Torchy the Battery Boy was not something that Jerry Anderson had written. Um it was a collection of stories written by a lady whose name I can't remember off the top of my head. And she was apparently a dreadful person to work for. And they spent all of the time filming um, this and and the previous show, which again, I can't remember the name of offhand. Um, they spent the whole time just trying to save money to get away from her. Oh, no. um, and they, <laughs> yeah, they, 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 they finally got, got away from that woman and um ended up with Lou Grade which is probably the best person that you could possibly end up with uh for a show like this because he loved he loved a nothing more than producing television shows and b nothing more than producing television shows that he could plow money into and get back off the Americans all he ever wanted to do was sell shows to America and the really sad thing is for the most part the things that he that he produced did not sell in America at all, <laughs> uh, which is a shame. But like the British audience definitely reaps the the benefits because the quality of the shows that he produced, as you say, still stands up today. Still, it still looks like it's a it it, it could be a a modern show, despite the the fact that technology has moved on such a lot since the sixties. For example, in the, the perils of Penelope. We see Alan and Gordon um, pouring over a map to try and find the Anderbad Tunnel, um, which they wouldn't they wouldn't need to do now. Uh, but the 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 sight of two puppets wrangling over a map is is quite cute. To be fair, <laughs> <laughs> I uh, you mentioned um, Lou Grade, and I think there's a, a, a savage irony considering the last episode we talked about uh, the tripods and Doctor Who, both of which were cancelled by his son, Michael Grade. Yes. 
So there's a, a we've sort of come full circle talking about his son r- r- stripping money away from shows because he didn't like science fiction, and then now talking about his father ploughing money into a science fiction show. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, possibly Michael was just trying to not be his dad. Um, he clearly wasn't his dad because he didn't have the eye or the uh, bold head or the capability. Well, it's it's very strident. The opening music. We're before. I I think everything before two thousand and one Space Odyssey. I think two thousand and one reinvented how we put music to technology and technological vehicles futuristic vehicles because everything after 2001 it's all elegant waltzes and that kind of thing and that's sort of dreamlike eeriness of seeing spaceships in the sky set to a waltz but of course prior to that this is 1965 it's really strident timpani drums and trumpets and big brass sections and it's all about more of a kind of adventuring kind of rousing thing going on yes that was barry gray um he did all of the music for all of the super mario nation shows um you know so to to be fair he he totally knew what he was doing because you all you all you need to do is say the word thunderbirds and the first thing somebody will say back to you is um it's just true it stays in everybody's head no matter what even if you've never heard it you know um so yeah barry gray was an absolute genius it's it's completely iconic yes it's it's even having possibly never never seen a full episode before it has so much iconic stuff from the collapsible palm trees on tracy island and uh thunderbirds two and three particularly i think are quite iconic vehicles and lady penelope and parker driving around in their pink sports car brains looking like trevor horn from buggles and all that kind of thing Uh, <laughs> you see, I'd always said Elton John, but now you've said your man from the Buggles. I mean, fair play. <laughs> with, with apologies to the man from the Buggles and Elton John. Yeah. Oh well, I, I think I, I'm. They came afterwards. I have a, but I have a hunch that Trevor Horn possibly based his image on brains. He, he may well have done, actually. Yeah. I mean. You wouldn't. You wouldn't wear those glasses accidentally, would you? Well, I certainly wouldn't. Um, <laughs> although, to be fair, I do wear giant black glasses anyway. But anyway, and speaking of iconic things, the the thing that I always love about Thunderbirds, and um, I think this is probably because of my favourite character, and uh, all my favourite episodes involve this particular mm. chap, as, as you know as I have never made any secret, Gordon Tracy is just my, he's my guy. I love him more than anything. Um, <laughs> he, he My is... note I wrote was, Ron Howard's in it. <laughs> well, you know how much I love a short ginger man. <laughs> that's, that's all I'm going to say. Yeah, I don't like the sound of that. Um, but he has Thunderbird 4. He does. Which is... As we all know, Yellow Submarine. A Yellow Submarine. Mm. And this was filmed in 1964, which was two years before Yellow Submarine by the Beatles was invented. Please, can you put an audio clip of Yellow Submarine in this? Because I need to hear Ringo. Oh! 
So my my theory is basically that John and Paul were watching Thunderbirds and were like, do you know what? Thunderbird 4 don't get enough love. And that's why they decided to write Yellow Submarine. And Paul McCartney himself could knock on my door and say, Heather, no, that is not why we wrote it. It was something, something, blah, 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 which was great for John at the time. (laughs) (laughs) And I would still say... (laughs) No, Paul, you're wrong, son. I think it's entirely possible they did enjoy um, science fiction shows. And there's a clip of them in the studio with Paul singing the Aquamarina theme tune. Marina, Aquamarina. Yeah, we'll do one of them for Christmas. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> How come you fuck up everything that you do? <laughs> Marina. I will be pleased to see the Earthmen disintegrated. Okay. Oh, wow. So they did watch puppet shows. I did not know that. Yeah. Well, in that case, now as you said that, that's just confirmed it for me. I'm just, that's it. That's it, the end. Mm, yeah, they they enjoyed their science fiction. Uh, Ringo, I think, was a Doctor Who fan. There's a photograph of John posing with a Dalek as well. So they watched the 60s shows, the 60s sci-fi shows, and they liked all that kind of thing. So it's entirely possible, even if it wasn't conscious that, like, Gordon Tracy's Yellow Submarine had sort of inceptioned itself in his mind. So um, I liked I liked the opening titles. I liked the little flash forwards to what was going to happen the happen in the episode, and you yes. can tell it's going to be a spy episode because there's karate chopping and there's people tied up. And that's the two ways that you know it's going to be spy show: karate chopping in the back of the neck. Yeah. To knock people unconscious and people tied to chairs. People tied to chairs and railway lines. And railway lines, yes. Or just hovering a bit above railway lines in this case. Yeah, but it's fine because that made for such a heroic rescue, which we will get to. We will. And I thought it was nice to have them introduced at the start because certainly in that episode, they're not in it very much, the the actual Thunder. The Tracy brothers aren't in it very much and I struggle to tell them apart. It was the second episode where I could start to really kind of tell who was who a bit more. Yeah, you got four other personalities in in Terror in New York City. In this in this one, it was very much like this is this is Penelope's show. This is what. Yes, yes, it's almost like two different shows, like two parallel shows. There's Penelope and Parker mm. off doing spy stuff, and then there's the these rather earnest young men off doing their uh heroic rescuing and it does seem like this is having only watched two episodes but it seems like they occasionally cross but it's almost like we're expecting them to alternate every week and do their own thing and just the other one's like oh hi you're doing a thing hi we're watching we'll come and pull you off the train tracks if you need (laughs) that kind of thing (laughs) that's 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 it that's the synopsis (laughs) (laughs) um yeah and it's good to have explosions at the end of the title sequences because you really know where you are with explosions. It's like, ah, good explosions, that's comforting. These 70s and early 80s folk horror shows like Children of the Stones or The Stone Tape or things like that, they don't have explosions in the opening titles and you're just, um, you just don't know where you are. It's just quite unsettling not to have a big explosion in the opening titles. So it's, it's good and reassuring. 
Yes. Uh, I Another note I made, well, it took me about six minutes to suspend disbelief and not to laugh at the tiny little vehicles trundling around. <laughs> and I, I, I was treating them as people rather than ridiculous marionettes. So I think that's not bad. That's that's not that's not bad at all. Um, to be fair, the introduction for um, for Perils of Penelope is very slow. Um, they yes, he he does like having these shots that just take forever of various bits of machinery moving. <laughs> he really does. Um, I don't know why that is. We've already spoken about the Beatles possibly watching um, Thunderbirds, but p- potentially Stanley Kubrick as well, because I did write down that it has the pacing of 2001 A Space Odyssey, going back to that again, um, that you just see everything that these machines are doing very slowly. So it's very... it's so very slowly. Yeah. And they're just, they're moving from here and now they're leaning, they're tilting and this piece of machinery is going to that and this is trundling along this thing. And it's quite a process-driven show generally, I think. So Because that whole opening bit, there's, I think the opening five or six minutes is just a rocket launch. Yes. And it is just the process and all the dialogue is, is just the process of launching a rocket. The, the £17 million pound thrust got me. oh i didn't i I couldn't stop laughing um also if you have if you've watched thunderbirds for as long as i have uh which is nearly all my life um you will start to um recognize the actors voices and all of the first six minutes every there were about three maybe four characters that were all david graham um who definitely needs mentioning in any thunderbirds um, any Thunderbirds sort of related discussion because he just is, he is Thunderbirds. Well, viewers, excitement is mounting in Blockhouse 42 here at Cape Kennedy as the most daring rocket launching of all time counts down. Launch site clear in 15 seconds. Start thrust checks at liftoff minus 15 minutes. If anyone could hear you, and I'm glad they can't, they would think that you had nothing to do with this new process. I wrote down David Graham actually because I'm he's been in a couple at least a couple of Doctor Who, at least one Doctor Who, and I'm very familiar with his face and I couldn't I couldn't square his face with Gordon Tracy's voice. But he's also he's also Brains and Parker. Oh is he? Wow. Um so he's he's three lead characters and uh, most of the incidental actors. It was hard at first not to think of Pete and Dud. Soon we in Britain will have no tourist attractions left. There's got to be an explanation. Would you come in here a moment, Brains? I better go, Pop. Why, son? I'm playing his cotton-picking part as well. <laughs> when I was little, I taught myself to talk to to walk like uh, Troy Tempest and phones from Stingray. It's still it's still a move. I occasionally pull out the bag to make people giggle. It took me a while to for me to think of who Parker reminded me of, and I realised it was Clive Dunn. Yes, it is Clive Dunn. Every, yeah, everybody, like growing up, everybody would say that it was Noel Gallagher. And I'm like, no, Noel Gallagher wishes. <laughs> Noel um, Gallagher wishes he was that cool. <laughs> exactly. Parker also has gi- rather giant, frightening eyes. His eyes are huge. And also I, I've uh, written down there's some astounding eyebrows, uh, but beautiful clocks. It swings in roundabouts, isn't it? What, what you lose on the eyebrows, you gain on the clocks. Exactly. This was back when a really rich posh woman could be the hero of an episode. 
rather than the butt of a joke. Really posh, rich women would sort of... People liked them more in the 60s. But to be fair, Lady Penelope wasn't wasn't just your average, everyday posh woman. She was a badass. She did not care. She was going out and doing the right thing and being a hero. Honestly, just I love that woman so much. <laughs> well, you say she doesn't care. One of my notes is um, Penelope is casual to the point of being insane. That, that when her life is in danger, she does not care a jot. She and doesn't. I think it's the the all the scenes with Penelope and Sir Jeremy on the train are hilarious <laughs> because they just seem completely sozzled. It's like, oh, I think someone's shooting. Is, is someone's shooting at us? Just, well, and when she gets the the cocktail shot out of her hand <laughs> because it's been poisoned, she said, "It was such a pretty perno." It was such a pretty perno. How tiresome. The gentleman asked me for a light, and he must have put something in your glass when my eyes were blinded by the flame. Oh, dear, how tiresome. It looks such a pretty perno, too. I just love her. I I have so much love for her. She was great. She was great. Um, And I I like the fact that the secret agent is a woman in this, Um, especially for the 1960s. I love that aspect of the way women are portrayed in in this show um because so many times they are just meant to be the helpless ones that need rescuing and i know that penelope did need rescuing at this in this episode that we're watching but so many so many other times she's the one who's saving the day and i think it seemed more natural in this because everyone needed rescuing so jeffrey needed rescuing as well and the scientists yeah. needed rescuing so it wasn't just it wasn't just Penelope playing the damsel that she she'd got as far as she could and they all ended up in trouble so it wasn't just just her going help help it's the hooded claw judging from um film and tv particularly british film and tv in the 60s i wonder how many spies and agents there were per head in the british population they were all spies there's got to be a lot of them well where we're speaking about um posh people even more entertaining than lady penelope was sir jeffrey Oh, yes. Who would exclaim things like, capital. Yes, and also when... But the bit... Uh, you you say, because I hope it's the same bit. <laughs> the bit where they're trapped in the basement and they're being gassed and yes. he says something on the lines of, don't worry, I'll sort this out. And his method for sorting it out is to bang on the door and go, let us out, please let us out, we're British. <laughs> yes, let us out, we're British. <laughs> well, we'll soon see about that. Here, you out there. Are you listening? Open this door. Do you hear? Open this door at once. We're British. And even when they're being gassed, they are both like, oh. Pen- <laughs> uh, Lady Penelope says something along the lines of, oh, that's how they'll dispose of us. It's gas. And not a window in the place. A very clever way of disposing of us. She's never worried that Parker's, like, behind the bushes having a sly wee. But he's always in the car, ready to rescue them at a drop of a hat. Parker would never. He seems like the competent one. I know, I know you're all for Lady Penelope, but she seems just a bit vague. And she's there and she's like, well, I don't know what to do, but Parker will sort this out. We seem to have blundered into a mess, but Parker will sort it out. Don't worry. Oh, he'll Parker. he'll think of something. Parker, can you... We were on fire. Can you just think about this? Yeah, uh, he does have about 956 different ways of saying yes, my lady, and only some of them actually mean yes, my lady. 
This is what we would now call these days a Thunderbird Light episode, isn't it, really? It's, it it's, is. It's, um, it is a puppet spy show. With passing mention of the Thunderbirds, who I wasn't entirely sure what they were doing until they actually get to the rescuing part. Uh, they just seem to be footling about doing something, and I wasn't quite sure what was going on. Also, characters in this have no notion of uh, not tempting fate. So I've written down a couple of lines of dialogue. So towards the beginning... Um, one of the characters says, If anyone could hear you, and I'm glad they can't. But even more than that, I think it's Jeff Tracy says, Well, I don't think much else can happen before that train gets into Anderbad. Yes, in fact, when I rewatched that last night and he said that, I heard myself say, Oh, hello, Freddy foreshadowing. <laughs> uh, because it was very much like two seconds later, something goes horribly wrong. <laughs> and, uh, I think that I think what really needs to be said here, which you may you may have wanted to come out with, mm. but I'm gonna I'm gonna just preempt you here. Um, the last few moments uh, where Virgil manages to laser gun down the uh, the ladder, uh, and he throws himself over Penelope while the train is booming overhead. The look between them. There has never been more sexual sexual tension between two puppets in the history of puppets. It's quite amazing how much of a smouldering look they can get out of two characters whose faces <laughs> don't move. Oh my God, that look. I think I got pregnant. <laughs> and and yeah, when, when his face... When, no, when his hands kind of brushed across her face, it gave me a little tingle. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Same. I'm not even a Virgil girl, but wow. I, I mean, you were gonna say, that would have done it. Woo. Speaking of hands, it's a little unsettling when it cuts to real human hands. But I like, I really appreciate how they try and act that their hands are mobile, but still sort of in that shape. So they don't wriggle their fingers about all over the place. They sort of, it's not, it's sort of a half and half thing they do, which is quite good. Yeah, it is. It is good. Um, the majority of the times that you see a woman's hand it is Sylvia Anderson, mm. um, who was also the, um, she was the, like the, the basis for the design of Lady Penelope. And she, she had like most of the say over the, the characters and the way that they all looked. All of Lady Penelope's wardrobe was made in two sizes. There was a, a tiny little marionette size and then there was Sylvia Anderson's size. Hmm. Um, and she, she would wear, she would wear Lady Penelope's wardrobe just, just in general, you know, and, and especially when they were out doing Thunderbirds promo, um, she would always be wearing the same outfit as Lady Penelope, and she looked amazing in all of them. And I thought that was great because honestly, if, if I could, if I could create a character like that and have their wardrobe, I would totally do it. I also wrote down that final scene with Alan. Alan is very punchable, and what Tintin sees him, and I, I, oh, he's don't so know. punchable whiny complainy oh my goodness yes i'm not sure i've ever wanted to punch a puppet before <laughs> oh my god same absolutely same although his comment about parker doing an interesting rumba it <laughs> does get me every time uh, i want to see parker's rumba why is it so interesting what does he do oh my god and how does alan know about it um th these are all of my questions but yeah, no, Alan, God, he just, he whines just so much. And um, 
he didn't actually deserve for Ting Ting could so do better. I always look because I, I write a hell of a lot of Thunderbirds fan fiction, as you know. Um, she's always with Scott in my stories. So we go from um, slightly sozzled spy shenanigans where everyone's really casual about the spying mm. shenanigans. We go then to terror in New York City, which is the whole other end of the spectrum where everyone's really stressed and it's not casual so at all. Stress. And Lady Penelope would not fare well there, I think. Uh, and my first note for that episode is the smoking puppets. The, the puppets have fags in their mouths. They're standing there with the ciggies. And it's quite cute, really. They're tiny little cigarettes. It really is. But it's not something you get on a kid's show these days. It really is cute. No, nor would all of the the gunfire, I don't think. Mm. Um, In the the new series, Thunderbirds Are Go, there is is a complete lack of, of guns, even on Thunderbirds machines, which would be useful in, like, blasting away rock from a mountainside in order to, you know, rescue someone. My other note was... Virgil seems to do everything. Like he has, he has his his Thunderbird too, obviously that can contain all these other vehicles. So then he gets in the other vehicles, and he's the one off doing stuff. It's like, oh, we'll just get Virgil to drive this thing. Virgil will do it. <laughs> Virgil doesn't mind. I told you guys no pictures. Listen, Buster, you've done a great job here today. Now let me do mine. I said no pictures. Please destroy them. If you, you think, think I, I do, do that, that, you're crazy. The Thunderbirds thing is that they, they do all of these heroic things and they don't want any recognition for it at all. Um, so he so in Thunderbird 1, there is an automatic camera detector in, installed and whenever someone tries to take pictures, the, the automatic camera detector goes off so that they can ask nicely several times um, if they'll get rid of if they'll get rid of the footage and you know most of the time it, it does work but hey we're just trying to do our job you've done a great job here today buddy now let me do mine exactly. no shut up <laughs> if you do your job i can't carry on doing my job now get he lost could. he's just this whole modesty thing he, it's pathological modesty he's weaponized modesty <laughs> so it really is. And not only did they not delete the footage, they he drove off with his poor cameraman <laughs> stood on the Joe roof. Joe has a really bad time, hasn't he? He's <laughs> like, Joe. stop driving. Joe does not do Stop driving. Ned, stop the truck. No deal, Joe. This is the best news story we have ever had. I'm not going to lose it now. Joe does not deserve anything that happens <laughs> yeah, in this episode. Poor Joe. Mm. Oh, Joe's my God. Joe's in a bad way. We hear several times Joe's in a bad way. <laughs> we know Joe's in a bad way. Will you stop? <laughs> oh, poor Joe. Joe never did a bad thing in his life. I love the scene when the Tracys are all sitting around watching TV and they're watching the news report about the Empire State Building being moved, which is just a funny thing to say out loud anyway. <laughs> But more on that in a second. It doesn't sound stupid when you're watching it, but when <laughs> yes, you talk does. about it again, it's like, what the fudge? <laughs> I love the scene when they're all sitting around uh, in their living room watching it on TV, saying, they do anything for a story. And I think you're a bunch of hypocrites. You're all watching this on the telly. You're sitting there watching it, going, let's check out the news. Oh, t- oh those news honestly. reporters, Tusk. <laughs> they do anything to do their own jobs. Exactly. <laughs> 
swine. Who, who was really surprised? It's like, oh no, the Empire State Building is going to fall down now because we've moved it. Who was surprised? Who at the planning stage? Did anyone at the planning stage think, you know, it might if we move this enormous building off its foundations, do you think it might fall down? In fact, the line I wrote down was, "There's a very real danger the building could collapse." Uh, t- t- no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's uh bonkers and also i probably wasn't supposed to laugh when they fell down the hole but i laughed when they fell down the hole that was hilarious <laughs> it was a bit joe funny, on his camera still joe was still standing in his camera and they both the camera and joe both went over together i think it's how joe would have wanted to go <laughs> they'll never separate us <laughs> they won't oh I liked Robert Mitchum puppet. He was one of the police. Yes, I know. I know the exact one that you mean. Um, the flashing eye effect on the fo- on the uh, paintings on the walls that would creep me out. It reminded me of when I was little the video for um, Total Eclipse of the Heart. Oh yes, Bonnie Tyler song. Yeah, with, with the schoolboy with the glowing white eyes. Yeah, that terrified me. That is so scary. it reminded me of that and gave me flashbacks. I love that the puppets get five o'clock shadow. Oh, I love that. I think I probably love that in a different Even way. Even Gordon gets a blue chin. He does. He does. We we know and way more about Gordon than we ever needed to from, from that five I was going to say, as a ginger fellow, we do not get a blue chin. Uh, Gordon does. Our face just becomes, uh, our, our face goes out of focus. <laughs> yeah. I think I would I would have preferred I would have preferred that, but no, uh, it was it was a it was a proper it was a proper dark, but he seemed to somehow find time between being on the phone to Scott all night, um, and not and not having had a shave to the following morning when uh, he leaves the Sentinel, he'd had a shave by then. I noticed that. So he he he's obviously like really really yeah. Uh, on the ball with the old uh, with the old personal hygiene there. Um, a scene I enjoyed, which I also laughed at, is when one of the characters, I think it's Robert Mitchum puppet, says, the film of finance building is going to collapse. And Scott says, which one's that? And the policeman says, that one, and points to a nearby building, which is leaning at a funny angle. <laughs> it's like just a few feet over there. It's the Leaning Tower of Pisa thing over there. Oh, that's, that's, <laughs> that, that one wasn't... that's leaning at 45 degrees that's the one that's going to collapse oh that that wasn't sort, sort of a design thing no <laughs> no it was not i thought it was just being all casual like um did, did we meet john at all or does he spend all his time in space um john does spend the majority of his time in space and there are a lot of episodes that he doesn't appear in and this is because jerry anderson didn't like him Oh, so he. Um, Why didn't he like his own? He banished him to space. Character. Um, Rumor has it it's because um, John's John's puppet was modelled on um, Adam Faith, oh. and Jerry was jealous of Adam Faith because he thought that Sylvia had had an affair with him. <laughs> whether or not the rumor is true, or whether that did happen or not, that was the reason that. Or, or there was some reason that Jerry just couldn't stand John. So he just shipped John off into space. Uh, and 
the, but the, the, this this is the thing that baffles me. He 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 ships John off into space, and John is actually a brilliant character. Um, he is really dry and sarcastic, and doesn't care about anybody's nonsense. He will just, in fact, he's he's a very good person to have up in Thunderbird Five because he instantly takes control of the situation and, and will and will calm the rescuees down and doesn't get into a flap about anything. Um, so he, he's 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 great where he is, and um, according to a mixture of fanon and canon. Um, he he was like a, a really really into astro- uh, astronomy anyway, mm. and um, had written. He'd, he'd graduated. He graduated various universities with all kinds of degrees in astronomy and stuff, and he'd written books on astronomy. So, so being the the guy in space is is fine for John. He's all right with that. But weirdly, Jerry Anderson's favorite character was. Um, Alan. Oh, ooh. it was his proper garish Jew wish fulfillment character. He, Alan, was the youngest of, of the Tracy brothers mm. and was uh, a famous racing driver, and was also uh, an astronaut because he had the the rocket that went in space to do the of space course. rescues. Um, just was like there, there was nothing that Alan couldn't do apart from you know have a personality of his own. Um, <laughs> And so uh, Je- he was Jerry's favourite, so he he ended up being in way more episodes than he should have been. However, he did have to alternate space duty with John once a month. So there are some episodes where we see Alan in space. So John didn't go completely around the bend. Exactly. Exactly. We do sometimes see John on Earth, and those episodes are great. I love the idea that he's that Jerry is seething with jealousy every time he sees this <laughs> puppet that looks a bit like Adam Faith. It's like, oh, Adam yeah. Faith. <laughs> oh, Adam Faith, my nemesis. So um, the questions that I have, um, who were your best and worst characters? It's lucky I watched both episodes because I would not have been able to tell the Thunderbirds apart had I only watched The Perils of Penelope. Mm. So I think my favourite character was Sir Jeremy because he was just so funny. Capital. He kept me very entertained. Least favourite character has to be a toss. Least favourite character in the in the Perils of Penelope would be the dastardly foreigner, just for the cliche of it being a dastardly foreigner. Mm. Uh, in the in the terror in New York City, uh, Alan, just for making yeah. me want to punch a puppet. There's there's no dignity in that. Both good choices. Uh, probably my favourite character in the second episode would be Joe, the cameraman. Joe. We love Joe. Stop driving. Stop driving. We've yanked the plug out of the socket. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Joe. Honestly, he just needs a hook. <laughs> he really does. And, yeah, which which were your best and worst bits in the episodes? I... I liked the hardware. I liked the array of different vehicles that they had. I liked that it's such a vehicular show. I enjoy all the different range of vehicles. I like the those different pods that Thunderbird 2 can like sit on and it contains something different. Yes, that is really cool. I definitely I definitely enjoyed the second episode more than the first episode, just because it was more Thunderbirdsy and more about the rescuing. And the, despite 
the other one having the word peril in it, I felt there was more peril in the second one. Yeah. Yeah, honestly, I don't uh, even know how many times I've watched the second one now. And I still worry every time that Gordon's not quite quite going to make it. Yeah, it, it it is quite, they do wring a lot of tension out of it. So I, I really liked how much tension they, they uh, could wring out of um, essentially some marionettes and some toy cars. They could actually put you on the edge of your seat from watching that. Least favourite element other than Alan. I mean, it's difficult to criticise something which is successful in doing what it sets out to do. So whilst watching The Perils of Penelope Pitstop, I was sort of craving real people. Less so in the other one because it was kind of the puppets and the vehicles all worked really well. And the puppets worked well in the other one, but for like a spy show involving characters doing spy stuff, I kind of was maybe craving real people a little bit, mm. which is churlish because it's a puppet show. It hasn't got real people in it. So I'm I'm criticising a show for doing what it set out to do. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe it's like more complexity in the plot, less less padding and process and more plot complexity and twists and turns would have been nice. But it's a kid's show from 1965. So it's 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 not going to be LA confidential. So so that's not really a criticism. It's more me being an adult in the year 2020 watching a How dare you. children's puppet show. Um, so Alan. Yeah. Alan's face. Yes, Alan's face is definitely <laughs> the worst. He is just a terrible character. Um, <laughs> has a face like slapped ass, and just honestly, episodes that don't have him in are my favourite episodes. That's it. That's that's all I'm yes. saying. It's all about Gordon. It's not remotely about Alan. And that's the hill I'm going to die on. Yeah, I think that's fair enough. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for showing me. I enjoyed watching them. Great. Do you think you would ever see another episode, even if I didn't force you into it? Well, it's good escapist TV. I don't... If I'm being honest, I don't know if I'd get around to it because there's probably other things I would watch first. Particularly if I was going to watch a spy thing, I would probably watch um, Man From U.N.C.L.E. or Mission Impossible before Super Marionation. Um, So I'd probably be more likely to watch one of the rescuey, disastery things. I'd probably Mm. watch one of those. So potentially, it's not a hard yes, but it's not a hard no either. Yeah, but it's all right because you've you've still got me and I I will end up forcing you into watching another one. That's that. Thank you so, so much for putting up with me and for for watching the episodes. And thank thank you, you. everybody, for listening to me ramble more. We have definitely enjoyed ourselves. If you want to get in touch with us, we would love to hear from you. You can follow us at Retro underscore Tube on Twitter or you can email us. Um, Our email address is retrotubepodcast at gmail.com. And as always, we we would love to hear from you. We'd love to know what you think of the show. And uh, if you've got any ideas for things that we could look at for future shows, then we'd like to hear suggestions too. Well, thank you for joining us. And until next time.
This is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. My folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. Don't talk to strangers, don't play on the farm, and don't go to Almondby. Heather's on-off boyfriend Stephen has gone to the mysterious village of Almondby. He went for two weeks, and no one has seen him in six months. The only trace of him which remains is his voice, distantly calling for help, drifting across the fizz of shortwave radio. With a couple of friends in tow, Heather sets off through a warped, distended version of the English countryside, baking in perpetual summer, to track Stephen down, and to find out for herself why everyone says, don't go to Almondby. Author Eric LaRocca called Lost in the Garden eerily enchanting and profoundly inventive, a dreamy and unsettling masterwork. This is one of the freshest and most spiritually rewarding novels I've read in quite some time. And author Matt Wazilowski described it as like trying to recall a troubling and beautiful dream. It's like peering through a wound in the world, sorrowful and uncanny and utterly stunning. This book is magnificent, like nothing I've ever read before. Thank you, Matt and Eric. Lost in the Garden by Adam S. Leslie, published by Denink Books, priced at ten ninety nine. Look for the pink and white cover.